Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is July 27, 2016. This is episode 1836 of the Survival Podcast, and I've got a great one for you today. We are going to talk about the reality of crime and violence and reality-based martial arts with Richard Ryan. Who is Richard Ryan? Richard Ryan is the real deal, guys. This is a guy with a black belt in 12 different martial arts. He's uh, done so many different things. He was a U U.S. Protective Service agent. He was a master firearms and edge weapons instructor for U.S. Marksmanship Academy and the world-famous Gunsight Training Center. Um, he spent a decade as the senior use of force advisor for Arizona Peace Officer Standards and Training where he holds the distinction of having his programs taught in every law enforcement agency in the state of Arizona. Um, he's very well known. This guy has been inducted into the Martial Arts Hall of Fame. Combat, he's been awarded Combat Martial Arts Founder of the Year, Self-Defense Master of the Year, and Professor of Martial Arts Award. He's the founder of a, a system he calls a Dynamic Combat Martial Arts System. Uh, he's done work in film and movies. I mean, the guy is just... Great. And what I like about him, and you'll hear in the interview, is our philosophy is identical. Uh, it really is. It's it, it's uh, kind of amazing to me that we think so similarly, uh, given that I've just gotten to know him very, very recently. I think you'll enjoy the interview. We're not going to talk so much about the application of individual martial arts techniques, but the philosophy of survival, uh, staying alive, and, and the re, you know the difference between reality-based theatrical type martial arts, uh, those two, but also like, I think you'll really enjoy his take and how similar it is to my take on things like MMA. Amazing athletes, nothing wrong with it, but it's not reality-based street-level combat. And we'll hear all about that more in just a minute as soon as I bring Richard on. Before that, let's hear from our two sponsors of the day. You know, I use a Berkey water filter in my home, and I have for over six years now. It's important to me to have the best quality water, but it's also important for me to get great service, pricing, and support, which is why I only deal with one source. That's Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason, one of the top dealers of Berkey in the world with customer service that will blow you away. Learn more at Directive21.com. Again, Directive, and then the number is 21.com. Hey folks, when I started TSP over eight years ago now, the first company to ever offer to sponsor the show was SafeCastle. And they've remained a loyal sponsor ever since February of 2009. And did you know they give away a lifetime discount membership to all MSB members? They do. And that can save you big money on everything you can imagine for your prepping needs. And with SafeCastle, I do mean everything. Check out SafeCastle.com today to learn more. And with that, let's take a look at the year that was the episode, the year 1836, because the episode is 1836. I have the Faraday Cage and EMP. I also have Remember the Alamo. And in other news, Milton Bradley is born. In his checkered life, he will no doubt be gaming the system soon. And finally, a Strike Anywhere match is invented that does not explode, You don't strike them, though. They use white phosphorus. That is toxic. A less toxic formula will be found later. 
And Thomas Crapper is born in this year to everyone's relief. He will not invent the modern toilet, but he will make the discussion of modern plumbing more the, the discussion of modern plumbing more acceptable as a topic. He'll also do some real pioneering things, guys, that actually makes toilets in homes practical. Um, you know, it's great if they have this toilet that does all these wonderful things, but if there's not plumbing in your house that leads to plumbing that goes somewhere, it doesn't really do you any good. It's just a hole that poop goes into. It doesn't go anywhere. So Thomas Crapper lets us all. Take a crap, not by inventing the toilet, but by helping to make it work for everyone. Anyway, I, as much as I want to read the Faraday KGDMP as a text, and I got to read Remember the Alamo. General Santa Ana is here, and he has brought his army. The Republic of Texas has declared its independence. Their fortunes, their lives, and their sacred honor are at stake, and they know what it means if they fail. Colonel William Travis is holding the fortifications at the Alamo, but he's having no better luck than Mexican General Cause had last year during the siege. With forlorn hope, which is no hope at all, he draws a line in the sand. All who are willing to die with him shall cross it. Uh, even Jim Bowie, almost dead from tuberculosis, has his bed carried over the line. One ran man remains. Moses rose up to the front. Up rose Moses rose. Up to this point, he has fought bravely alongside Jim Bowie, which has never been a safe place to stand. But Rose says he's not ready to die. He escapes westward through the town of San Antonio, which is separate from the Alamo in these days. The defenders resolve to sell their lives as dearly as possible. Three days after Rose clears the wall, a cry goes up, the Mexicans are coming. It is March 6, 5.30 in the morning, and Travis shouts, we will give them hell. The Alamo cannon fire hits the Mexican troops with a sickening slap. Travis delivers two blasts from his shotgun and receives one to the forehead in return. It is a slaughter until the north wall is breached. The Texans fall back. Jim Bowie lies on his deathbed and asks for no quarter. None is given. It is too late for that now. Former Congressman Davy Crockett is left to defend the chapel. He has told his constituents that if they insisted on going to hell, he was going to Texas, presumably for an honest fight. He has found one, and he and his six men are the last to fall. Remember, the Alamo becomes the battle of San, the battle cry of the Battle of San Jacinto. A few weeks later, Santa Ana is going to pay, and Sam Houston is going to collect. My take by Alex shrugged. Could the Alamo defenders have surrendered? Unlikely. Santa Ana needed to show resolve by crushing all opposition ruthlessly. The wolves behind him would have taken him down otherwise. Regarding Rose, he was, was Jewish as I am. I find him an embarrassment today, although I think I would have been okay with him at the time. Like my father who fought in Korea, he had done his duty. If, I, if, wanted, to set, if wanted to set down his musket, given a fair choice, that was his business. But I worry about the lesson it conveys today. It tends to paint the Jews as weak, and weakness draws enemies closer in until the hammer falls. It is a mistake in tactics, I tell my fellows so. Regarding the Battle of San Jacinto, it was a major victory, but it would not have sealed Texas independence alone. Fortunately, General Santa Ana was found the day after the battle, hiding in the marshes. With his surrender, his army was forced to capitulate. Later, Santa Ana was criticized for calling for calling for liberty, but some res but resorting to dictatorship, he replied that, quote, a hundred years to come, my people will not be fit for liberty. They do not know what it is, unenlightened as they are, and under the influence of a Catholic clergy, clergy a despotism to the proper government for them. But there is no reason why it should be a wise and virtuous one, end quote. 
I'm not sure how the Catholic clergy held them back. As I recall, a Catholic priest led the Mexican Revolution, at least at first. He was correct that for a certain time of rational decision-making by the people is required for a properly run democratic republic, though. Um, here's my take. The guy that left the Alamo and didn't fight, I, I would actually not give him any grief whatsoever. Um, my belief is to stand and fight when you're knowing you're going to die is not really a smart tactic at all. In fact, we're going to talk about this today. As, as much as we look at the Alamo and think of those men as heroes, I'm not saying they weren't, but, you know, that, that battle that eventually happened that uh, turned the tide and Santa Ana you know, ended up surrendering, might it have even been better won if the people from the Alamo hauled ass and linked up with that force and were more suited to actually take on that force and actually be a more decisive, quicker victory and might... More lives have been saved on both sides. See, here is where I think the art of war comes in. You always choose the place of the battle. You always choose the time of the battle. And you only choose to fight when you know that victory is certain. And think about that as we have our discussion with our special guest today. Again, my special guest uh, today is named Richard Ryan. This guy is the real deal, amazing martial artist and really... More than just the skill set, like the way that the man thinks. And with that, hey, Richard, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Well, I'm happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me, Jack. Man, I've got you on, and I am, uh, I'm excited to talk to you. Uh, we're talking about the realities of crime and violence in today's world today with you. And uh, it's a subject that I talk about probably not as much as I should because I try to be as diverse as I am. But this is one of those things, you know, with survival needs, I say security is the one. They talk about the rule of threes. Well, You can do without security for three tenths of a second when you need it, right? So this is, you know, you could go 30 years and not need it, but if you need it in three tenths of a second and don't have it, you can be dead. So very important topic, but kind of to get the audience to connect with you, man, could you talk to people about how you got into what you're doing and kind of going back to like, I don't know, like high school days or something like that? Because most people I find don't sit around in high school and think, when I grow up, I'm going to be what they eventually become. Yeah, uh, well, I started studying martial arts when I was a little boy, and actually I got involved because of my father and grandfather. My father uh, was a champion wrestler, and my grandfather was a champion boxer wrestler, and he was a police captain who taught defensive tactics for the police force and for the FBI. So when I was young, I kind of really looked up to them and I admired them. And, and so, you know, when I was a little kid, I kind of got kicked out on the mat early on when I was just – a little toddler basically and ended up really liking it. And so I wrestled in high school and I started studying martial arts right about the time where um, Bruce Lee hit the, hit the market and uh, with all the Kung Fu television series and all the other stuff. So I was a young kid kind of enamored with the, the coolness of martial arts. Um, and then as I got more involved, uh, I had a personal life tragedy that kind of threw me in a strange direction. I, uh, in high school, my, my mother passed away of cervical cancer, and I was a very angry kid at that point, and I kind of hated the universe at that, that moment, and I ended up getting into a lot of fights and some bit of trouble, nothing serious, but, you know, some rowdy trouble, and it, it all stemmed back to that, and then one day, one night, actually, I was with a friend of mine who could not defend himself. He was kind of one of these chubby, really laughable friends. And I was out at a, at a mall and 
couple guys that knew me from another school pulled up in a Jeep and I ended up having to fight them, all three of them at once in a situation where, uh, you know, my, my friend couldn't fight and I had to defend him or take a beating and let him get hurt. So I, I got, I remember having so much rage and I ended up throwing the guy through a wig shop window, one of the guys that tried to tackle me. And at that moment, my whole world kind of came to a abrupt stop. And um, I had thought that I had just killed him. And what scared me the most is I kind of did it intentionally. I knew what I was doing, and I threw him through the window. And this whole window came out of the sky, and it seemed like an hour passed, but only probably a couple seconds. And he stood up in the darkness, and he was covered in cuts, but he was all right. So everything stopped. The entire world stopped. There was a couple people watching when it happened, and they were frozen. And I just, we just ran in our car, and I went on top of uh, South Mountain, uh, which is a, a high mountain. And I stood there most of the night and thought about what I was doing with my life and that I could have changed my life. And I realized that I was angry because of my mother, and it's not the way I wanted to be. So I came back to school the next day, and I, I lost all those people that I thought were my friends. And I ended up using martial arts as a way of therapy for me. I started studying more about the mental aspects of it and started understanding more about the humility involved and the, and the integrity and honor that goes along with martial arts. And I completely had a kind of Jekyll and Hyde reversal of my outlook on things. And I became more fascinated with the depth at which martial arts can uh, affect somebody's life. And it literally did save my life. I'd probably be in some jail somewhere or something if I didn't didn't have it. So I always used it. It's been therapy for me my whole life. And I've also been privileged to have a pretty large career. I um, got involved with law enforcement and military. I've, I've taught uh, military special ops, Delta Force. Uh, I've uh, taught at world-renowned places like Gunsight. And I've visited over 30 countries around the world teaching my version of, of martial arts. Fascinating, fascinating story. And it, um, it, it, it hits two buttons for me. One, the story you just told about putting a guy through a window sounds very familiar to a story of my father doing something very similar, throwing a guy downstairs and he and a buddy taking off and hiding up on a mountain um, really? for, for two days because he thought he had killed the guy and he really didn't even hurt him that bad. I mean, it yeah. almost sounds like the same story, yeah. except instead of a, a martial artist that was angry, he was 19 and drunk on cherry vodka. Um, <laughs> uh, and, and, and realizing at that point you couldn't behave that way, he was uh, he had actually just been drafted to go to Vietnam, and I think that was oh, wow. part of what was you know fuming him. But yeah, he's he spent 48 hours hidden, and finally, him and his buddy, this guy named John Slifko, decided we got to go back and face the music, you know. And and then they came back, and basically it was like. The bar guy was mad because he broke some stuff. That was it. And uh, Wow. But uh, he, he told me that story, and it always kind of stuck with me. And then the other thing is, you know, I grew up kind of as a, an angry kid. I was part of the uh, the forced integration uh, in the South. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, white kids sent to black schools and having black kids sent to white schools against – Where did you grow up, Jack? Jacksonville, Florida. Okay. And uh, in the in the late 70s and early 80s, and uh, there was a, a lot of anger and stuff. And I got into martial arts at about uh, 10 years of age. And at first, I wanted to just learn how to beat people up. And right. what right. I learned over the years is the more that I learned about 
how to defend myself and how to use violence, the less I had a need for it or a desire for it. Oh, absolutely. It creates a dramatic paradigm shift in most people that are willing to go beyond just the you know the initial classes. And you also learn real quick that no matter how good you get, there's still somebody out there somewhere that can always kick your ass. And that is <laughs> that is like the most that's like the first thing you need to learn. And it usually takes people a long time to learn it. Yeah, especially males. Yeah. 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 The ego involved. Sure. So let's yeah. go, go ahead. Go ahead. I, was saying, I thought I cut you off there, so if you were saying something, go ahead. Nope, go ahead. Okay, um, we're going to talk about the realities of, of crime and violence today and how they affect the average person. Can you kind of talk about your view? Absolutely. That? Absolutely. Um, I started, I, I actually created my own martial, own martial arts system in the 80s, and what I was looking for, I didn't actually create it to teach it or to do anything. I was really interested in the reality side of martial arts, and I began to realize early on that today there are four different types of martial arts systems, and they have to do with variations in self-defense and variations in, in entertainment and so on and so forth. But they're basically uh, traditional martial arts, and traditional martial arts is the first category. It is the oldest version of martial arts, and most of these martial arts are stylized in the idea that they're, they're either kind of everybody's seen the old thing about being in an animal system, you know, crane, snake, tiger, martial arts, stuff like that. And they just mimic the animals. Um, or they're based on a, a founder or a couple founders' personal preferences. Um, like if you're tall and, and skinny, you know, you can do Taekwondo. You can do kicks really well. But if you're, you know, 300 pounds and short in a squat, you're not going to be the greatest kicker in the world. So, you know, genetic influences came into the society at the time. Uh, where uh, the geography of where a martial art came from had a lot to do with these traditional styles. For example, uh, you know, in Korea, they came up with Hapkido and, and Taekwondo, and uh, those are long-range kicking-type arts. They emphasize the kicks over the punches. And the reason they do that and the reason it developed that way is because Korea has very uh, large open spaces, and they were not an urban environment. You contrast with that with uh, an art like Wing Chun, uh, and, and that was developed, really developed and refined in the streets of Hong Kong, uh, you know, there are three or four people fighting in an elevator in that type of city. So they had to develop, you know, arms, close range type of striking. So there's a great deal of stylized personal preferences, and that doesn't make it realistic. It just makes it stylized. So that's the traditional martial arts. The other type of martial arts most people are familiar with today is MMA. So MMA is the manifestation of sport martial arts. Now, since ancient times, people have used their, their art of war as a sport. Obviously, the, the gladiators did so, but even the ancient Mongolians would have uh, tournaments where they would wrestle each other and a lot of grappling involved in it. But we've always had sport-type martial arts where people have tested themselves against the other, but they haven't been life-and-death encounters. And so MMA, mixed martial arts today, is the manifestation of that type of sport. It went from, in the martial arts, it went from very little uh, contact with early on because they actually thought that martial arts techniques were so deadly that if you struck somebody with a backhand, you would probably kill them. <laughs> so they, <laughs> And then June Rhee June came out with, um, you know, his, his special gear, the, the foam gear for the hands and feet, and they started smacking each other and kind of realized, well, it's not quite as deadly as we thought it was. And that led to uh, full contact. And my mentor and, and great friend of mine, the late great Joe Lewis, was the very first ever to publicize 
Full Contact on ESPN, and he he was the founder of Full Contact Kickboxing. And kickboxing was kind of the pinnacle of sport martial arts right up until the Gracies came out with uh, UFC, Ultimate Fighting Challenge. And that changed you know, the, like the landscape right completely. There, quick, just on the, on the Joe Lewis thing, when I was uh, getting ready for this interview, I was looking at some of your YouTube videos, and I just watched, just before we started talking, uh, a fight with uh, Joe Lewis and Superfoot Wallace, like when they're in their 40s, from only like, I don't oh, know, yeah. maybe eight, nine years ago. And those guys are still in great shape. But what, what struck me there is this, what you just said about the, the, the being afraid to let martial artists go full contact because they're going to kill each other or whatever. What always got me when I was training is, you know, you've got the foot pads. And they, they, you know, if you hit somebody with a wheel kick or something, yeah, sure, there's a pad there. But your, 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 your strongest kicks are impacting, like, from the heel, or right. and there's no padding there whatsoever, and like it was, no, like, it was no. like a cathartic thing. Oh, they have a pad on their foot; it's okay. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I saw that very thing, and I actually watched that video again for like the tenth time a, a couple weeks ago. So I, that was a great fight and a great tribute to some athletes that are really excellent. But here's the thing about sport: no matter what, it's still sport. Okay, you cannot equate it to reality. They're they're actually they do a lot of marketing to make it seem real. So, you know, they say as real as it gets in, in mixed martial arts. But the truth is, um, it, it's only real when it comes to the application of what I call the four R's. Okay, that changes everything. Rings, referees, rules, and rounds. Those four things take it a giant step outside of the real world. In the real world, you do not fight in a ring. You fight usually in environments of concrete, glass, metal, furniture, things that can really harm you uh, in a fight, knockdown, drag out fight situation. There are no rounds. There's no time frame in a real fight. You have to fight until you either can escape or you can, uh, you know, stop the adversary from doing what he's doing. There's no referee. There's no one there to say, hey, that was a cheating move, you know, and there's no rules. So you, you come in, you, anybody can do anything. You get out in a pushy match and suddenly the guy pulls a gun and shoots you in the head. Yeah. So there are no rules, no, no guidelines to it. And those four things take it outside of reality. So I tell people that MMA is great. These athletes are incredible. They're great guys. Uh, you know, for the most part, uh, my bet pet peeve with MMA is that it really, uh, the way it's been portrayed, it creates kind of a thug mentality. A lot of times there's, there's kind of a, you know, WWE aspect to it where there's a good guy and a bad guy and so on and so forth. And I, I don't like it, the fact that our kids watch that. So the, the sport has actually taken out some of the humility and the honor that I think is important in martial arts. And I tell people that my system is a non-traditional reality martial art with traditional values, values like humility and integrity and things like that. But I don't see that a lot in the MMA. But I do see incredible talent and incredible skills. I and yes, some of the things that, that, that they teach can be used in the real world, but many of them can't. If you just turn off the sound and watch an MMA match sometime and watch them going through their actions, just imagine them not in the cage with a padded floor, but on a concrete. You'll yeah. see that a lot of times their head hits the ground or their knee hits the ground or elbow hits the ground. That would shatter into a million pieces on a concrete floor. That, right, it's the guy that's quote-unquote winning that has that impact, right? Like, like it's not... It's not just the guy that's on the receiving end of a, of a takedown or something. The guy that takes the guy down, he kind of overshoots. His head bangs off the floor. 
but he's got the initiative, so it actually works for him. If he did that, exactly what you're saying, on a tile floor in a bar room or a concrete you know, uh, parking lot, he's done. Yeah, absolutely. He's in, he's in the hospital. He's in a concussion or, or worse. You know? and then, so that, that takes it outside of reality. Here's something I've been saying. I've been getting heat from my own audience for a long time by saying a lot of what you're saying right now, that MMA is great, it's wonderful, they're amazing athletes, but it's not reality. When we do training sessions with students, um, we'll have two guys that you know are in that mindset, the grappling, the jiu-jitsu and stuff, and it's amazing. It's an amazing skill. I'm not putting it down. But you'll oh, get, for sure. You'll get them keyed up to where they're really going with each other, and you walk up next to one of them, and you just take with wearing a boot and you slam the ground about two inches from their head with a flat foot slam and go, that was his buddy that just, that, that just broke your brains out of your skull that just walked over and did it because you're exactly. so wrapped up in this fantasy. that Because that's fine if you, like, you get in a fight with somebody else and it's like mano a mano and they're gonna, you're just going to see who wins. That, that, that's fine. And if you're in that fight, in the real world, you shouldn't be in that fight. That's for the ring. When, when you're in a real violent situation... You have more to worry about about the people you don't know that are involved than the people that you do. It's in, it's a refreshing to hear you say that. You and I are on the same page, and not everybody understands those type of realities. We do what's called survival sparring. We have we have all sorts of weapons that are created out of foam and rubber and stuff like that. Uh, you know, uh, rocks, things like that. And when we when we train the grappling. We have a situation which I'll get people grappling just like what you said, and then I'll throw something between them. <laughs> and then they have to use the like a first, rubber right? a, a rubber screwdriver or something. And you watch what happens and it's there is no the technique goes out the window. It becomes, Oh my god, now I've got to get that or stop you from getting to me with that. So it becomes something completely different. So weapons involve multiple opponents. MMA doesn't deal with weapons at all, both yeah. use or defense. It doesn't deal with multiple opponents. It doesn't deal with environments. It doesn't tell you about fear management and the legal moral aspects of the use of force. And these are all things which a reality martial art, like my art dynamic combat, does. We have to deal with all of these other aspects. Yeah, and I mean, I think one of the things I'm actually thankful for from MMA, though, is it's destroyed all of the fantasy romanticism about martial arts. Like, you never see two MMA fighters get in there and somebody do a textbook taekwondo front punch, right? You just you, <laughs> right. All of that stuff, like, that's one of the best things about it in, in, like, the kung fu movies and stuff. And, you know, the one guy taking on 12 and knocking them down as they come in one yeah. at a time. Like, it, like it, it did do that. It, it kind of decimated that. But then it created, and I agree with you, I think it's created kind of a thug attitude, right, of this, like, this tough guy beat people up attitude and as a competitor, you need some of that when you're in the ring. But, you know, the, the greatest competitors in the world in combat sports have been very humble people outside the ring. Most part, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I agree with you completely on all of that. The, um, well, let's move on to the, to the third type of martial art that exists today. It's what we call extreme martial arts. And those extreme martial arts are the types of systems that you see used in the movies and choreography and television, I actually have my entire system and I've choreographed many movies and many fight scenes using a different variation of my martial art that's all designed, you know, to be aesthetically pleasing and exciting and so on and so forth. But I tell people that what you see in the movies and what you see in a lot of these expositions where people are fighting seven people at once or whatever the hell else they're doing is, is 
you know, the, like if you watch a James Bond movie, it's not real, okay? But a lot of people accept it as real. So you, I tell people that extreme martial arts have to do with real martial arts, what James Bond movies have to do with real espionage. One is reality, one is fantasy, and don't ever get the two mixed. Just because somebody can fight in a movie or fight, uh, you know, in an expedition or a demonstration of something does not mean that they have any real combative skill whatsoever. Now, they may be tremendous athletes. You've got to give credit to these people. John Con Van Dam is a great athlete, and all these, Bruce Lee was obviously one of the uh, ones who could do both, but it's very, very rare. And so those movies have nothing to do with it. Yet, like MMA, they influence people's understanding of reality. You'd be surprised if you talk to people a lot, I'm sure you do, that, that a lot of stuff that they perceive about real danger and real crime is because they've seen crime shows and dramas and, and things on television, and that's not what it's like to be in the middle of a first-person real encounter. So it's, it's, their perception is very, very off. So it has very little to do with the real world. Yeah, um it really does, because in general, the most dangerous people to you are not the ones that tell you they want to kick your ass first, right? That's Without that's, question. That's the biggest misconception. There's always this squaring off. Every every other self-defense instructor I hear says, well, when you're in a bar room, and I'm like, what bar room are you going to that you're constantly getting in fights with people, and maybe you're the problem? Like, when when you're actually <laughs> in I mean, really, like, what are you going to the get-my-ass-kicked bar or something? I I don't understand that. It's the person that decides, I don't like you because you're in the wrong place. It's the person that decides they want your money. It's the person that decides they didn't like something you said, but they don't say anything about it. They just come up behind you and hit you in the ribs with a freaking knife. That's, that's the danger that's out there. I mean, that's, that's the crime and violence that, that I see in the real world. Absolutely. This is, this is one of the most common mistakes people make is they – they think that they're going to be able to see it coming or they're going to be able to see the, the bad guys, you know, judging a book by its cover type of thing. And that's just not true. That's only true of the stupid ones, the ones that are so stupid they don't know how to use deception or their intelligence in order to do it. The best criminals, the best and most dangerous people in the world are the ones that use psychology and behavior patterns, which are completely opposite of what they're trying to get accomplished. Those people are smart. They're, they, you know, the guy that's uh, driving the, the Ferrari in the $1,000 suit may be a drug dealer. You don't know. The person that's really nice to you or wants to help you with their groceries may be planning on throwing you into his van like Ted Bundy did. So you have no idea, you know, what this is like. And this is a very common problem with most people. I tell people, you know, here's, here's the other, I'll give something to the audience right now that's really important that's in all my books and, and things my videos, um, you know, how do you deal with that? So do you, I, I was a professional United States Protective Service agent. I was a bodyguard for many years and I did the bodyguard work. And what I noticed about being a bodyguard was that uh, I, I was what's called a shadow guard. A shadow guard is a person who specializes in protecting one person, a single person, you become their shadow. So I got to know some of these people, but I would go on a job and I would come home and I'd sleep for like three days because it was so exhausting. The, the idea of being completely paranoid the entire time, yeah. that is a job of paranoia. You're looking around, everybody's a danger, everybody's a threat, everything, and it's just so exhausting. And then I did realize that that type of mindset was drifting into my real-world experience. I was walking down the street, and I would start looking at people like, 
you know, and I realized, oh my God, I'm expending so much personal energy and, and thought in this that it's just, it, I can't live this way. So then I developed a couple mental switches in my head that I think everybody should have. And the first one is the switch we call JDLR. JDLR stands for just doesn't look right. Yeah. And I keep that switch off 90% of the time. In other words, I just stay aware, enjoy my life, enjoy the world, don't think anything bad. But if anyone, any person, any place or thing around me, JDLR, just doesn't look right, I flip the paranoia switch and I start looking for the worst case scenario coming out of the out of the bushes. So that's a really powerful thing for most people to understand about about dealing with this thing. You can't always judge a book by its cover, but your personal instincts inside can do an awful lot. If someone seems too nice or too swift or whatever, you should flip that switch. And for the most part, you know, try to live your life free from too much paranoia. <laughs> yeah, I agree. And I mean, like one of the things I'm always hard on my wife about is if we're like in a, you know, a city area or something, and there's always panhandlers around and they approach you and they're always, they just need this. Or this. And I'm always like, don't, mm. that, that's my first word. Just don't go on with yourself. And, yeah. and she's like, you're being mean. I'm like, listen, you have no idea who that person is. They're already coming to you asking for something. You don't know them. Nine out of ten of them are just fine, and all they're trying to do is, is get by. But I'm not risking your safety or mine over the over the 10% that aren't. Absolutely. And, and yeah, and you touched attitude, on something. Right? Go ahead. I'm sorry. It's, it's, it's that mental attitude, right? Because the people that are looking for a victim are looking for the easy victim. They really Absolutely. Yeah. That, by definition, is what a criminal is. They don't want to work for it. Yeah. You know, they they, they want to take the job. easy target. They're a predator. Yeah. Predators take the weak and the ones not paying attention, the ones away from the group. Uh, you know, so another, another thing is, you know, credit criminals avoid lights, people and noise. They do that because they don't want to get caught. Sure. So if you're somebody trying to talk to you and say, well, you know, we're having a great conversation. Let's move over here and uh, talk near my van, which is in the dark parking lot. That's just stupid. Yeah. But people do that all the time. They just ex seem like, well, this person seems really nice. And I think that has a lot to do more, and I hate to say this because I may sound a little sexist, but a lot to do with women and their social upbringing. No, women right. tend to not think about it like men do. And they, my wife is incredibly outgoing, and uh, she is just brightens the room whenever she talks to somebody. But it took a while to get her to realize that she can't be doing that all the time. And she finally realized, and oh my God, I really can't because we really don't know who we're actually talking to 90% of the time. Yeah, you're dead on with the women thing. I love my wife. She's the same way. And a completely benign example of this, but the, the whole psychology thing, every time we're car shopping, we talk to a car salesman about a car and it's like, we're going to go think about it. She's always like, well, he was so nice. Right. Well, of course he was. His job <laughs> is to sell you a car. Right. And if, if, if that exactly. mentality is there, it permeates everything. And, you know, my whole thing is I'm suspicious of you until you give me cause not to be. It doesn't mean I won't talk to you. It doesn't mean I won't help you in the right situation mm -hmm. or whatever. Mm -hmm. But when you're trying to approach me in a way that, as you said, just doesn't look right, then yeah, exactly. we're not doing that. We're not doing that. If you if you continue, then I'm, a, I'm considering that at least some level of assault on my person. Right. At that point. Right, like, right. And I'm going to take that attitude. And it's not I want to kick your ass. It's OK. We're going to amp up the resistance here and we're going to deal and control the situation. I'm also at that point, like, is there anybody else involved here instead of getting that tunnel yes, vision on that sure. one person, you know? 
Absolutely, for sure. Now, you've traveled all over the world. You've taught law enforcement, military, special ops, things like that. What do you think about the difference in crime and violence, let's say, in the United States versus other countries? I spent time in Panama and Honduras. It's a it's a different world in the third world, man. It, it sure is. It sure is. It is. It is different. But my view of it is that man is doing the exact same things worldwide that he's been doing forever. Where uh, that's one thing that people don't, you know, really think about a lot of time is is we're we're the same creature we were a couple thousand years ago. We look for the same things: money, sex, power. You know, we lust after other people, married or not. There's a lot of you know a lot of things that we still do as human beings. And we have, we're never going to breed those things out of us because we're part animal. All right. So human beings are by nature a predator. And if you have any doubt of that, you know, look the way our eyes are positioned in our head. They're positioned forward. A cow's eyes are, or a lamb's eyes are positioned to the side. Why? Because they need to be able to see the predators coming more 360 degrees. A predator looks straight forward and goes after its prey. You know, we may not have the sharp claws of the tiger or the teeth, but Nature or God gave us an incredible brain and an articulated thumb which allows us to create weapons. We are the ultimate predator, and we'll never stop being a predator. And, you know, one thing that's taught me about traveling worldwide and seeing all sorts of different people and circumstances is that there are three types of human beings on the planet, and this is my personal belief. On one end, one-third, or whatever percentage you want to give it to, are people who are fundamentally good. They're going to do the right thing, and if they're like my father, they're going to do the right thing even if it hurts them. So they're going to own up and, and deal with their own problems and take care of everybody else they can take care of. And because those people exist, there is exactly the opposite of those people also, yin and yang. There are people who are fundamentally evil. They are simply going to always do the bad thing. They are wired wrong. They are, they are mutants, and what they're going to do is try to hurt you or use you sociopathically any way they possibly can. And we coexist with those two people all the time. We have a veneer of civilization. We're walking around and you don't know that the person you're talking to that seems completely nice is not a completely evil son of a bitch. So that's the reality. The, the middle people are the sheeple. These people are kind of, you know, they can, they'll, they'll go whatever direction. If they can cheat on their taxes a lot, they'll do that. You know, they'll do whatever, as long as they can get away with it. They're kind of morally ambiguous. So those three people exist all over the world, regardless of the culture. And you never know which one of them you're talking to at any given moment unless you know them thoroughly and know their, their uh, you know, attributes by their actions. So those exist, and obviously there are places where there's more poverty and more crime throughout the United States and throughout the world, and uh, more places where you know law enforcement is almost non-existent. You know, so uh, in those situations, they can be extremely dangerous. I was almost never unarmed. You know, I was always armed wherever I went. I one of the one of the best tricks I can give you that I, I have traveled through many dangerous places with. If I could not carry a firearm into that country, I would go to like a, a restaurant or something when I got there and I'd steal the largest steak knife that I possibly could steal. And I'd dig that out and I would literally take the local newspaper and I would wrap the, the knife in the, in the fold of the newspaper and hold the newspaper holding onto the handle. And I would walk through some of the most dangerous places and there's a knife sitting in my hand. Mm-hmm. 
ready to be used instantly with only paper between it and the point in the blade. And that, uh, I've answered doors like that. These are the situations which you need to learn how to improvise because I don't, I never wanted to get caught. And I've been in situations in third world countries where you're in the middle and there's two or three people and you're really in trouble. So, yeah. See, and the whole thing about we are the animal that we, we evolved as, but we've also been domesticated to a large degree. And and the problem is there's people out there in that group, that subset group that are inherently evil that will hurt other people. And then there's that, that, that middle group you're talking about. I've always said they're the people that are kept in check by fear of consequences, right? It's not that they wouldn't Good do point. it. They, they, they don't want to do it because there's pro- the, they, they, they might get killed back. They might go to jail, you know, whatever it is. Uh, so, so they're like psychopaths held in check by society. But mm. some of these people are really in touch with that animal instinct. And it's like I if you've ever seen two domestic dogs get into a, a dog fight where they're serious, but they're just kind of throwing down on each other. They kind of grab each other on the side of the neck. They turn each other around. It's very much like, you know, a couple teenagers get into a fight in the parking lot outside the football stadium. Right. You get a dog that's twice as big as a coyote, and that coyote engages that dog. If that dog doesn't realize the risk fast enough, that coyote will kill that dog. Yeah. Because yeah. the coyote is operating at the basal level of the dog that it is, where the domestic dog is ask, acting from a domestic standpoint. And the danger is we have people that are acting it's a good thing that people are not trying to kill everybody, but when you encounter somebody like that, you have to get on that level with them because your life's on the line. Or even if you're not dead, your, your, your long-term safety, you know, you could end up paralyzed. You could end up severely injured. You could end up crippled. You don't have to die to be altered forever by a single conflict. Exactly. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And that right there identifies one of the most difficult things to get across to people about self-preservation and survival is that um, it's the use of force issue. Let's talk about that a little bit. So, you know, if you study the law and you look at the laws, uh, I, I did a, I was able to go to a lot of different states and get, I would always go to the Capitol and grab the statutes and I'd look at the laws in that state. And pretty much in the United States, they're, they're generally uniform about self-defense law, uh, but they do vary in place to place, from city to city, from state to state. Obviously, the laws are a little different in California than they are in Texas or um, Massachusetts. But there's, the fundamental principle is the same. The problem with the law and self-defense is that all of it is filled with words like reasonable, yeah. reasonable use of force. What the hell does that mean? To somebody who grew up in Iowa on a farm may have a certain reasonable use of force. Somebody who grew up in a gang in New York is going to have a different idea of reasonable use of force, right? So that's why we have the lawyers and the systems and the court to look at all of these, every incident, you know, in case by case. That also creates an ambiguity, ambiguous problem for most people in that how do you, how do you know, you know, what you can and cannot do in a circumstance? And if you try to break down the laws, then the laws may not be applicable all over the board. So I came up with something years ago that helps you, helps a person deal with these laws. It's what I call the legal moral survival triad, legal moral survival triad. And what it is, it's three words, avoid, escape, and resist. Hopefully in that order, seldom violated unless you need to. So first thing, avoid. What does avoid mean? Avoid means to see the problem, steer clear of it immediately, long before it becomes a problem. 
So that's the first thing you should be doing. So if you're walking down the side of a street that's dark, go over the side that's light. Try to avoid the problem. If you see a bunch of rowdy people, head the other direction. Do whatever you can to just avoid contact with them in the first place. If you can't avoid it, your next goal is to escape it. Take every available escape route and don't be afraid to run. That's why you have two legs. Run. Get the hell out of there if you can. Take every escape route. Why is this so important? Obviously, because I don't want to make a mistake in a fight or no matter how skilled I am, I don't want to be taken out by somebody. But because the fact that you escape and they pursue you turns them into a predator in the eyes of almost every law in the world. If you run out every door and those people follow you out the door and then you run into the parking lot and as far as you can and they chase you, in the eyes of the law, now they are the predator and you are the victim. And you've just gone a long way to justifying whatever you do in self-defense. And the last thing is resist. What do you do to resist? Well, you don't know what you're going to have to do to resist because only 50% of this encounter is up to you. Only your reactions to it. The other 50% is up to them. They're going to tell you what you need to do. Somebody pulls a gun, you should shoot back, or you should do anything lethal you can to take them out. Somebody just kind of argues with you, that's a different level of force. But the point being that you're going to have to do something, and the whole idea is to stop them from doing what they're going to do. You do not have the right to retaliation. You do not have the right to revenge. You do not have the right to excessive force, but you do have the right to use whatever is necessary for you to survive. And that may mean lethal force. And so that's hard for most people because they just can't imagine themselves using lethal force. Are you afraid, are you aware of, um, was it Jeff Grossman of Grossman's book on killing? Yeah. Yeah. And how that a lot of people that, you know, many, many people, they did studies in the army, the people that actually fought that only a small percentage of the people that actually fought in war actually did 99% of the killing that most people could not, even after military training, pull the trigger on somebody when they're coming right at them. They shot over their heads or they ran the other direction. So, you know, there's a there's an amazing paradigm, and that's for a soldier as opposed to somebody who's never even, you know, most people in the world don't even think about this type of stuff you and I are talking about right now. Yeah, it's exactly why when the military used to, as a matter of course for certain offenses, use a firing squad execution, they would always place they'd have a five man's firing squad detail and they would they would place blanks at random in one man's gun. So yeah, every man exactly. had a plausible be- belief that it could have been me that actually didn't shoot the guy. Right. It was to right. allow the psychological acceptance of the duty that was required. It's the yeah, absolutely. same psychology. Absolutely. And that that is probably the greatest problem with Uh, getting people to really defend themselves. And when you get down to it, when you get down to it, you have to be willing to try to kill the other person if you have to. And I'm not saying do it, you know, if you don't have to, obviously, but if you have to and it becomes you or them or you are protecting the innocent life of somebody else or you and your family, it goes down to the part that you have to, like you said, you have to get onto the same level. You have to go after them and you have to try to kill them because they don't, you can't assume that they have any such moral restrictions, that they're going to hesitate or show you any mercy whatsoever. I'm sure there's many, many human beings throughout history that have died hesitating at the last second, thinking, well, he won't actually do that. Boom, they shoot them or stab them or here comes a sword through their heart. You know, it's just this, just the reality. You need to be prepared from the moment that you flip that JDLR switch to fight back and fight back for your life if you have to. 
I, I completely agree. And it's, it's, it is a difficult thing to think about ending another person's life, but I've always tried to have the, the philosophy of, I don't want to kill anyone ever, but if you try to kill me, I will kill you back. Right. That's, that's, and, and I know that sounds horrible in some ways, but in the end, what is the alternative? I'm going to stand there and let you kill me. I'm going to yeah. try to show off my fancy disarmament skills while I get my arms cut up and, and lose a tendon. And even if I survive, right. I'm, I'm maimed for the rest of my life. I can't take care of my family. I can't take care of myself because I was concerned about your, your health and well-being while you were trying to kill me. No. Whatever the fastest means is to end the threat is what's going to happen once I feel seriously threatened. Now, there is, a, a like you say, a, a, the reasonable force issue. If if I've got someone that's clearly unarmed that's trying to smack me, I'm not going to pull out my freaking 45 and shoot them. Right? Of course. And I'm going to withdraw. And I think the other thing people don't get about withdrawal, first we've been brainwashed as men to think you're a coward for retreating. Retreating, yes, one, absolutely. gives you higher chances of survival. As a survivalist, that's important to me. But two, it also does, if the conflict does go severe, not even lethal, but you end up somebody going to a hospital because of something you did to them. You have, an ex you have a story to give law enforcement that's reasonable. I, I backed away. But three, it gives you a tactical advantage. When you stand your ground in a conflict where you don't have to, what you end up doing is sending – you start the monkey dance crap, right, where your shoulders go up, the other guys, they're ready. They, they, they think they, 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 they take you more seriously as a threat, where if you're in retreat, they think, oh, I've got this guy. And if they want to pursue that retreat, then you have the opportunity to take and choose your tactical advantage rather than spurring off with somebody. You know, and if the guy wants to strut around like a rooster because you left, that's fine. That's not, you know, that's not really my problem that you, you need that ego boost. But what I don't want is just to end up in a conflict where somebody really gets hurt. And if, if it does happen, then I'm going to do my damnedest to make sure it's you, not me. Yeah, Absolutely. I like you, Jack. We're on the same page. You know, Absolutely. The, the mental thing, too, like all these guys, like these MMA, there's a lot of like amateur MMA guys. These guys are incredibly conditioned. And this spring, I got a knee injury that I couldn't walk for a week. I was on crutches for two weeks. And even now, six months later, I still have to be careful how much, how much I put on that knee, how much I ask that knee to do. And for sure. that means that the mental component here has to be higher because the thing you would rely on, like, oh, I'll just knee this guy in the, in the freaking head when I drag his head down. Okay, well, I can't do that right now. And mm -hmm. people don't realize that that injury can happen and then you're walking around with it. You have time to think about it. That, that injury can happen in the middle of a conflict and then you have to adapt in seconds. Absolutely. Absolutely. It puts you in your mortal you know, role pretty quick. Um and then fear, you have in your notes here for me, fear, it plays a role in people. I think part of that fear is when they're asked to take that violence up. But the other thing is, like, it can paralyze you. What are some of your thoughts on fear and how people can deal with it? Yeah, absolutely. I've studied fear all my life because I'm a firm believer that the mind controls the body, the body controls the tools and the environment. All right. So without my mind, my body is useless. You can. I had a, had a friend of mine. <laughs> When I was studying martial arts when I was real young, the guy was such a talent at kicking. He made John Claude Van Damme look like an amateur. This guy could jump and do a three to six degree spin and, and kick a cigarette out of your mouth. It was just phenomenal. He was so good at it, but every time he would do it, he would criticize himself. And I noticed that in class. And when eventually he and I started sparring together, I just completely kicked his ass. 
<laughs> and I was shocked because he was so much better than me with his with his legs. And but I realized that his mind was not into it. He didn't have the killer instinct. He he actually was almost exactly the opposite. So no matter what skill you have, the mind controls the body, the body controls the tools and environment. So that means that you're going to have to deal with, you know, your perception, you're going to have to deal with fear and a lot of other things that are going to come in. There's going to be a dramatic uh, shift in your normal, everyday, uh, you know, uh, perception the moment that you get into an actual fight. And most of that is going to have to do with an onset of, of fear. Now, the problem is that our society does not teach anything about fear. Uh, you know, it's, it's one of our deficiencies of our system, but we're going to face fear our entire life in a whole bunch of different ways, from a job interview to speaking in front of people to, you know, being in a self-defense situation. You're going to face it, but who teaches you anything about it? So as a result, our society looks at it as enemy, when in fact it is your greatest ally. So fear is one of your strongest emotions. Like love, it's very, very powerful. So why does that emotion exist in the first place? It exists as several for several reasons. First, as an early warning signal to you. The moment that you start to feel fear about something, that is the red light going off in your head. It's saying, pay attention. There's something wrong in your environment or the situation or the person you're dealing with. Listen to that fear. So it's an early warning signal. That is that a bad thing or a good thing? Well, I would rather have an early warning signal against crime and violence. So that's it. That's part of it. The second thing, it's a power emotion, meaning that it does things to you. Once you start feeling fear, adrenaline flushes through your system. Adrenaline is like putting yourself in turbo. It, it makes you stronger. It makes you faster. It's like taking a drug, which makes you more, more quick and more powerful than you have been a few moments ago. But the problem is, physiologically, most people don't understand that, and there are ramifications to it. So as my adrenaline hits, and I, I start to go into a mild state of shock when you start feeling excessive fear, and your capillaries and your extremities shut down, your blood begins to pool into the center of your body around your organs, and you start to feel lightheaded, you may get butterflies in your stomach, you may get cold and clammy, and most people take those as a negative uh, ramification of their fear, when in reality, every single one of the things I just said is an attribute, not a liability. So my capillaries are being down in my extremities so that if I get bitten or cut by a saber tooth, I don't bleed out in two seconds and immediately die. So it's shifting all the weight to my organs because that's, I mean, blood to my organs because that's where it has to be in order to protect those primary vitals. Because the blood is leaving my brain a little bit and the capillaries are also being restricted around my brain, then I may feel a little bit more lightheaded than normal. And that's why my stomach feels a little bit that way. There's excessive blood in your stomach. So all of these things change on a physiological basis. But no one has an understanding that this is actually, that fear is actually your ally, not your enemy. So the first thing you have to do is learn to accept that fear is on my side. That when I feel fear, I am never more prepared to do what everybody's heard, to either fight or, or flight, to get myself out of there or fight back. And that is one of the important things you understand. The first thing is to accept the fear. The second thing is understand that we all feel it. If anybody ever tells you that they do not feel afraid in a, in a situation which they should, there's only two answers to that question. It is either one, they are completely lying to you, and they do feel fear for whatever reason, or two, they're insane. 
Yeah, there's insane people don't feel fear. <laughs> They're lying or stupid, one or the other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because stupidity is exactly. another thing. Like, are you afraid of this? <laughs> no. Well, you're not insane. You're just you don't understand the the situation. I think sometimes. I'm sure you deal with it all the time yeah, on your podcast. I get the stuff. other thing yeah. with my industry. I get the whole afraid beyond the way you should be. But I think what you're hitting there is a basal human instinct. So I one of my things is I'm also an archery hunter. And mm -hmm. you mentioned predator, and we human being in, in nature is predator and prey. There's animals, it's hard for people to get their head around, that will kill you and eat you. Still, today, people die all the time in places sure. like Africa when a lion gives them the chomp. We are that being. And while there's not a lot of things that kill any humans in the Americas, there used to be a lot more of them. And, right. But that fear thing, I think, is actually... A, a sensory thing more than an emotion and you feel it as a predator too. So when you're hunting with a gun and there's a deer a hundred yards away, you look at it through binoculars and decide if you want that deer or not and you shoot it. And I guess people that are new hunters, maybe there's some amped up feeling, but it's really very mechanical. When you have a bow and arrow and you have a deer 15 yards away that can hear better than you, see better than you, do everything better than you, there's a level of, of in tune you have to be to be able to move a bow up, pull it back, and get a shot and do it well. And because you're in that state, I've been in a tree stand or whatever, and you hear nothing, you smell nothing, you see nothing, you don't. there's no reason to believe there's a deer in the area. And all of a sudden, the hairs on your arms go up. <laughs> and even just talking about it right now, you know, my arms are doing that. I'm, I'm feeling yeah. that kind of goosebump thing. And you know, the hair goes up on the back of it, and you know your prey's there. I think it is the exact same biological process that tells you that your predator's there. Yeah, I think you're right. I would agree with you completely. What do you think the most important thing is the average person can do to protect themselves? And to be honest, it's a dangerous world. It is a danger, and it's becoming more and more dangerous every day. Well, I think education, knowledge is power. And I think the more knowledge you get, the better you are. I have a formula for that. T plus, uh, R plus T, I'm mean, sorry. <laughs> Let me get a drink. K plus R equals T. Okay. So knowledge plus repetition equals training. And there's no actual, you know, uh, secret to learning how to be trained in almost anything. You know, I, everybody's ignorant only on different subjects. If I was supposed to fly a plane, I, could, I would have a hard time doing it. But there are a lot of people trained in that. I remember sitting in an airport when I was young and watching a Green Beret get off a plane and walk by. And he had all these medals and stuff like that. It was when I was very young. And I remember, oh, my gosh, look at that guy. And I'm thinking, boy, he's he's really well trained. He's really really dangerous. And then when I eventually got to train the military, I began to realize these are just people like anybody else. And the, the result of their abilities is a result of acquiring knowledge and doing repetition with that knowledge. And they become trained regardless of what they are. So there's no mystery to somebody who's a black belt or anything else, except the fact that they have specific knowledge and training in some area. Now, the caveat to that is that the knowledge must be reality-based. It can't be based in fantasy. And there's a lot of fantasy out there. If you get on YouTube and you watch a lot of these self-defense videos, not only are most of them fantasy to a great extent, but there's an awful lot of them that will simply get you killed in a circumstance against a real violent predator. And so a lot of this stuff that's out there is very, very hard to 
reconcile with reality when it comes to it. So one of the most difficult things is to find out what works and what doesn't. Now, people can use a lot of common sense along the way. Uh, there are a couple rules that I use, the rule of time, okay? So if you look at a technique or a video that somebody's teaching you and they're teaching you three or four moves that you're supposed to do in a fraction of a second, that is impossible. Under stress, that's going to be even more impossible. You, When you heartbeat reaches over 160 beats a minute, you start losing your finite motor skills, and I guarantee you it's probably going to hit 160 real quick in a real situation. So you're going to substitute gross actions for fine actions, and you're just not going to be able to do it. So look at the time frame it takes you to do something. Always try to make something quicker and simpler. You know, try to eliminate two-step action for one-step action and try to make things as fast as you possibly can. That's one thing. Also, never underestimate the difference between action and reaction. All right, so action is always faster than reaction. And we have what, what I call a time-distance variable in every circumstance. It simply means that the closer you are to the threat, the less time you have to react and the further away, the more time you have to react. So you need to pay attention with that, too. You could have all sorts of ability, but if they're standing right in your face, you have no time to do it unless you take action right now. So you've got to deal with the time. So dealing with the time frame and the reaction frame is probably the single most important thing. Learning something that, I mean, use your common sense when you watch somebody. Think if something, think, well, could I actually do that in a circumstance? Or mentally, would I even be able to do that in a circumstance? So common sense can go a long way in getting people to learn how to see what works and what doesn't in the real world. Or you come to an expert like me or some of the other people are experts like you, and you find an expert and you listen to them. If you trust them and, it doesn't, and everything they say makes sense, then follow what they're doing and be a little skeptical of other situations which you don't feel quite as comfortable with. Yeah, definitely. I'm big on the, like, if, if, there's a lot of people that say they're an expert, but if if it feels wrong, it's probably wrong. And I, I think just about any martial art from a good teacher is a good starting point, but people have to find what they what they what what they're what they're gonna find that really works for them in the real world somewhere along that path. Um I think a lot of us are lucky. We studied martial arts, the traditional martial arts style stuff as children, so you kinda had that base and then you put it with some reality as a young adult. Whereas a lot of adults that go into martial arts, I think maybe they have a harder time getting that foundation because they intuitively know you can take Taekwondo all day long. Um, but right. but but right. while it will make you more equipped to fight if you have to, the actual techniques don't survive somebody trying to kill you. They they really right. don't. These right. these hard styles or even the the soft styles and and stuff like that. Wing Chun has a lot of practical carryover, right? The the way that you can move, the way you can you use sticky hands basically to slide off. But you know when somebody's multiple tribes trying to thrust the knife at you, it's not really as effective as it looks on YouTube. So, right, exactly. So those are just starting points. I think the other thing is, like, you have to think more about escape than I think as most people do. Like, let's say that you and I, we can handle ourselves, we're walking down the street for some unknown reason in the middle of the Black Lives Matter protest that just happened in Dallas, Texas, where five police officers were killed, seven were injured, mm -hmm. and two civilians were injured. Um Tell all the martial arts you want in the world. Some guy's 50 meters or further away with with a semi-automatic weapon. What are you going to do? Throw a high block? 
right? I mean, you've got to get out of there. You've got to move. You, you can be armed, too. I got Absolutely. a guy behind a concrete structure with a rifle. I'm 100 meters away with my handgun. I'm not engaging that target. I'm, I'm getting the hell out of there. So Absolutely. what you learned watching that on TV, and we watched it in real time because it's right here, um, is that when everybody panicked, everybody just ran. No one had any idea where they were going, where the best way to survive that, if you're not one of the first people shot, would have to have already known if something goes wrong, this is my avenue, of this is an egress avenue, and if that's blocked, this is my secondary, this is my tertiary, and have three different ways you already had in your head because everybody can run a little bit. But it's where right, you run and right. how you run and where you're going and what do I do when I get there, right? That's that's what keeps people alive because the, the, the hand-to-hand combat thing, I haven't been in that many hand-to-hand combat fights because I try to avoid them. But you right. can't talk down someone from shooting at you when they've already started or right. driving a truck through a crowd or, or, or whatever we've seen recently or setting sure. up a bomb. Um, these bombings, there's sometimes people seriously hurt, not by the bomb, but by the crowd freaking out and running them over. Right. Exactly. Yeah, that brings us to, like, uh, the definition of the fourth type of martial art. So you've got MMA. TMA, traditional martial arts, and EMA, extreme martial arts. And the last one is RMA, reality martial arts. So let's talk about why that's different and what and things that you should look for if you're looking for a reality-based martial arts system. First of all, back to your idea about the, the fact that, you know, someone's got a gun from 20 yards. It's not something that I can do an upward block against. Well, absolutely. Well, in reality martial arts, we use firearms and train with firearms Exactly like when we use any form of weapon. We use pens, combs, ashtrays, expedient and unconventional weapons of all types, things that are in your environment. So one of the things that we do is we, we include reality martial arts is all inclusive about what you're going to to use in this circumstance. So we do not uh, limit ourselves in that way. We train. I, I train from handgun to assault rifle. I've done police entry tactics. I've been certified in all that stuff or SWAT and everything else, and one of the few civilians that's ever done that. But it's it's all of that's incorporated in our reality martial art. So that's one aspect. The other aspect is you, your techniques, the basics that you learn, the basic self-defense techniques you, that you learn have to be simple, generic, easy to learn, and easy to apply. They can't be incredibly complicated or require dramatic physical fitness, skill, flexibility, or whatever. They have to be primarily hand-based, and they have to be primarily fast and effective and being able to be used in an, in an elevator as well as the 50-yard line of Packer Stadium. So they have to be a wide variety of simple techniques. Everything beyond that can be more specific. They, the techniques that you learn to add to your combative toolbox can be more tactical and more diverse in that way. You have to learn about legal moral aspects of the use of force. That's one thing that most schools do not even touch on, yet is, it is going to be the difference between you coming out of a real-life encounter and spending time in jail with the very people you defended yourself with, with against. Because you're going to have to, I always tell people, you're going to have to defend yourself twice, once against the attacker and once against an attacking legal system who's going to try to put you away. And so even though I don't think it's, it's malicious, it's just the way it is. So if you do not understand the legal moral aspects of the use of force and you get yourself into a bad situation, you overuse the force that you're using, then you're likely to be sued. If it's not civilly, then you could end up behind bars. Sure. So you have to deal with that. You have to deal with fear of management, as we talked about. 
You have to deal with all forms of, of, of weapons, both offensively and defensively. You have to deal with situations, confrontation management. How do you diffuse the situation? How do you, what type of verbiage do I use in a situation to try to de-escalate while at the same time not putting myself in a position where I'm too passive or too aggressive, which can bring the fight on? So confrontation management is, is another issue. All of the cerebral self-defense that goes along with it has to be in a reality martial arts system. You have to have a wide variety of techniques. They have to be progressive and expansive, but they also have to be usable under most circumstances. Simple. So, so the martial arts that you learn, you can kind of take that as a guideline. Does it teach me about fear? Does it teach me about the legal moral aspects? Am I able to use all sorts of weapons? Am I deal with all sorts of encounters, multiple opponents, multiple opponents with weapons? What do you do in certain environments? What if I'm attacked sitting in a car? If it doesn't have situational self-defense that's real-world applicable, then you've got a problem. Does, you know, and so look at some of those things and decide what you're taking is, is good or not. If they've got a major deficiency, you need to go somewhere else to find the information that you need. And that kind of defines what my martial arts system was. That's what I set out to do a long time ago was to create a martial art really for myself in the beginning because I just wanted to be the best that I could be. But then I eventually started teaching it, and people loved it, and, and law enforcement military got a hold of me, and we went from there, and I developed a reputation for the thing. But I actually have three martial arts systems. I have the dynamic combat method, dynamic combat for short, and that's my mother martial arts system. That's got everything I've ever developed in the system from A to Z. It's very comprehensive, highly scientific. Uh, based on physics and body mechanics and behavioral psychology. And then I had tactical defense training, which was the version of that system designed for law enforcement military, but really it's designed for the utilizing the force, the use of weapons right from the start. So somebody takes tactical defense training, we're going to start with a handgun, you know, and a knife. All right. And then we're going to move on to other things. And then I have quick defense training, which is really crime prevention strategies, avoidance strategies, and basic, simple self-defense for everyone from 18 to 85. And these are very simple techniques that almost anybody can learn. And those are the three systems that I have. And right now, I'm coming out with a brand new website. You know, there's two URLs to it, learntofightback.com and, and uh, ryanmartialarts.com. It's going to be live in about 60 days, and it's going to have online courses and all of these things, as well as a whole bunch of other aspects to it. You know, what I what I like about everything you're saying is the simplicity and the acknowledgement that like all of these fine motor skills and these very clever things that you can do and they're nice parlor tricks. And if you're dealing with per a person that's clearly inadequate against you and you're calm, you can do them. They don't necessarily work in the real world. And right. one of my teachers is a guy named Valery Aznov, Russian guy uh, that left mm -hmm. Russia after the fall of the Soviet Union because he was KGB and basically you joined the mob or you left. That was your two choices if that was where you came from. And we were working with Charlotte Swat. Uh, and they had had two officers, one uh, critically injured and the other one very close to critically injured by suspects that had knives and went down on their belly when commanded but would not put their arms out. Hmm. And when they finally tried, like, okay, fine, we got to get control of this guy, they, in, in two totally different situations, roll around and try to slash the guy's throat. Mm -hmm. So they tell Val this, and Val says, Give him training knife, you know. So the guy lays on the ground. He goes, lay on stomach the way, you know, so the guy does it. He goes, put your arms out. And the guy won't do it. He goes, everybody's got guns on you. Put your arms out. And the guy won't do it. He walks up behind him, steps on his balls. Arms go out, <laughs> right? 
And that's there you go. the mentality that, look, there, there's no reason to go and engage with this guy. I For sure. promise you, if you step on his balls from behind, his hands will do whatever you want them to do. <laughs> well, actually, what he said first is bang, and they're like, you don't do that here. Right? He's okay, then boom, and then, you know, out come the arms. And he's like, why, you've got to go home. He's, he's, he speaks English, but he sometimes the words, like pigeon, sometimes the words don't work. Like, you've got to go home to mama, or you don't go home to mama in a box, right? Like, that's what he was right. saying. Who are these guys? And they were so, and these are, these are SWAT guys. These are not, you know, beat cops. They're trying sure. they're yeah. so what they're doing, but yet they couldn't get their head around. You have all the advantages, use them. At, at exactly. some point, you felt the need to get down there and pull the guy's arms out, and you don't know what the guy has. For sure. It sounds like a really smart martial artist. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Cool, dude. Anyway, you want to give out that domain one more time, and you have some books? Yeah, you know what I'd like to do is leave you with something that's that really important to me. I, I wrote a self-defense bill of rights. Oh, wow. And there are five things I'd like to put out for people. It's going to be published on the website and all over things. But this is my self-defense bill of rights. Number one, and this is kind of my mantra and my theme well, for the everything that I do. Number one is your survival requires no apology. Hmm. That's number one. Number two is you have the right to live the life free of harm, violence, tyranny, oppression. The third bill, for third thing, is you have the right to justify self-defense. The fourth is further, you have the right to use any necessary force, even lethal force, to protect yourself, your family, or innocent life of others. And five is these rights are bestowed on you at birth and are inalienable and irrevocable. So that's my little bill of rights. That's awesome, man. Um, hope you get that website up, up soon. Uh, I went and checked, and you got kind of a coming suit page. You also do have a Facebook page, uh, and I just went yep. over there and liked yep. that. I'll make sure that your domain and the Facebook page are in the show notes today. So people can hook up with you. Oh, fantastic. Thank you so much. Well, man, Richard, I really enjoyed talking to you. It's nice to talk to people in this space that are level headed and are actually focused on reality versus art. And I don't, I don't put the art thing down and I'm sure you don't either. As long as you know, it's no, art for no. art's sake. I mean, I love things where like, I came from. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I love things like Kali, you know, and, and, and the sure. clock system and all. And that's, and actually, that's probably one of the more translatable to actual combat systems there is. Sure, like, yeah. Some of the stuff with the sticks and the flow and all, it, it's beautiful, but, you know, you don't really have the ability to do that when you're shoved into a corner. Um, yeah. So yeah. It's, 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 there's different levels. I like the way you broke it down into different groups of martial arts, and they serve different purposes, and none of them are bad or good. They just no, they all have no. their limits as to what that they can do for you, and... You know, and sometimes the best defense is a good retreat. And that's something that I try to drive home with people whenever we do classes. So, uh, man, love talking to you. If you ever want to come back, uh, once you get this other thing rolling, you want to come back and talk to us about it, just fill out. I would love to. That would be terrific. And and we'll have you back on, man. And uh, and thank you for, uh, for being with us today. Thank you so very much. I really enjoyed it. Everybody take care, stay safe, and keep punching. Yeah, man, I really enjoyed that interview. Um, really enjoyed talking to Richard, like talking to a, like a long lost brother or something, man. A guy, again, too, man. This guy is the real deal. If you look up his uh, his background and his pedigree, pretty amazing guy. Anyway, with that knocked out, let me remind you: if you like this show and you want to support the work we do, do consider becoming a member of the Members Support Brigade. To do that, just go get on over to the SurvivalPodcast dot com and click on Members, and you can sign up there. You'll get discounts to over 60 companies that are supplying the things you're probably buying anyway if you do all the stuff we're talking about doing on the show. 
and that will get you a discount that will, you know, over time pay back your membership fees. I've had people tell me that they make hundreds of dollars a year in profit on their MSB, and that's exactly how I designed the plan to work. And you get to support the show at about 18.3 cents an episode. And you can even sign up for, you know, 50 bucks a year or five bucks a month. It's up to you how you want to do that. Just again, it's thesurvivalpodcast.com. Click on members to learn more. And remember, you can always get to thesurvivalpodcast.com really, really easy. I have a short link for you, tspc.co. tspc.co will take you right there. Speaking of short links, how about tspaz, tspaz.com, tspaz.com. That's where you go when you're going to shop on Amazon if you want to support the work that I do. If you think, you know what, Jack does a good job for us. He puts together good shows. He brings us great experts, stuff like that. I want to kind of thank him for his efforts and keep him doing what he's doing. Then, I mean, shopping on Amazon through our link is a painless way, I guess is the best way to put it. I mean, you go to T-Spaz, you can see the item of the day, you can see all the reviews we've done, or you can say, I don't care about any of that, Jack. I just want to do my shopping. You click a link, you go to Amazon, you do your shopping, you buy your stuff, you pay the same price, you get your stuff, nothing changes, but we get credit for your sales. And that supports the work we do. And, man, that is a fantastic way to support the show, tspaz.com. Today's item of the day is actually, uh, it's not something everybody's going to run out and buy, that's for sure. But uh, I try to share all the things that we actually use in our home and our business with you through my reviews on Amazon. And it's the Archer 7 uh, wireless router uh, from TP-Link. Um, I have a big house. I don't have a McMansion or some stupid crap like that. It's just it's a long house, and it's made out of brick. And there's a lot of rooms in it. And that means, you know, my office, of course, is the far corner of one area, and then my bedroom that Dorothy and I sleep in is a far other area. And then we have an upstairs, and then we have outdoors, and, oh, man, every router I've ever had, catching signal from it, even with repeaters, is a pain in the butt. This thing, three antennas, it pops out some signal. Um, it's great. And you're thinking, well, I don't want that much signal because I'm in an urban area. I don't want to be pumping signal to my neighbors to give them an opportunity. You can put one antenna or two or three, and you can turn down the signal. It's easy. It's so easy anybody can do it, even me. I, I know you guys think I'm all technical because my technical marketing stuff and all. That's where it ends, man. I'm not an MCSE. I'm not a network engineer. I'm not a Cisco guy. I don't know any of that stuff. It's all browser-based. You follow the instructions, you set it up. It's got two band, uh, two two uh, two bandwidths that it runs on, uh, a two point five gig and two point two point four and uh, five gigahertz. And you might wonder why they would do that. Well, some devices just do better on uh, different, and they're on the same network. They're just two different bands. Uh, they do have different. You can set up your own passwords for them separately if you want to. But for instance, we have a a printer, fax, you know, do it all machine that's wireless. And that means I can sit out in my uh, in my living room working on my laptop, and I need to print something. I can print it. Well, it just doesn't run well on five the five gigahertz uh, wavelength. It drops, and whenever we dropped it down to the two point four, it works fine. So you can choose whichever one. It's got a guest network on it, uh, and the beautiful thing is it comes with a smartphone app, either for like your Android or for your iPhone. Either one, it'll work. And uh, you can pull up your network. You can see everybody that's on your network. If somebody has figured out how to get on your network and you don't want them, you can block them. You can block your kids until they do their chores just by going, block this device. Dad, I, it, the network doesn't work. Oh, it works just fine. You wash the dog, I'll turn it back on. It's even better than changing the password. You can change the password. Here's the best part, though. From that app, you can say, reboot the router. So if you ever have one of those problems, like when you're streaming Netflix and it gets kind of hairy or whatever and you need to reboot the router, you don't have to get up like you know, like the old days and go do it. 
you know, you can just hit reboot and it'll reboot it. It is a great router. Uh, one of the few times the New York Times and I have ever agreed, the New York Times said of this router, the, it is the router that most people should likely own. And, uh, even a blind squirrel gets one right once in a while, finds a nut, and the New York Times got it with this. I did a lot of research. I have three crappy routers. They're not even crappy. I have three routers that didn't work well for me in my house. And it, with my internet and with all my devices and everything sitting in my closet, if you need a free router next time you're by my house, I'm serious. Those of you that come by, I will give you one of them. You can have it. I am sticking to this new TP-Link Archer 7 I've had now for about six months. Uh, I have to even confess to my review that my last router made me yell unfairly at a customer service rep for Comcast blaming their internet for intermittent problems. And uh, when I did some troubleshooting, I found out that I was not very nice to that young lady. And I wasn't real mean. I was like, don't tell me I know. And you're like, no, I didn't know. Uh, this router is the bomb if you need a new router or if you're looking for an upgrade. And again, tspaz.com for all your Amazon shopping. Have at it. Uh, next up, remember our business directory at tspbiz.com lets you find people that are running businesses, small businesses, right out of the TSP community. You can check them out at tspbiz.com. Today's, uh, today's business directory supporter is Liberty Fox Defense. They provide concealed carry classes in Utah and offer custom pistol holsters for sale on their site. You can go to libertyfoxdefense.com to learn more. And that brings us to our Song of the day. Now, I have a song of the day. A lot of times I have like these deep meanings in songs and I find these words that maybe you never knew were there and give you a new way to look at them or I give you a song you've never heard before and then I show you like, even though it just sounds like a, a typical song, there's some deep meaning in it. I got none of that today. I got none of that today. I decided today that with all of the heavy crap that's going on, with the nightmare of the ass clown circus going on with the election, with the topic that we talked about today, I was going to find something related to this topic, but was just freaking plain fun. I'm about to play a song for you that I would bet every single person listening to this show has heard before. And it's old. It's very old. It's one of those songs that spans generations. It comes up in pop culture. It comes up on movies and TVs here and there. And I think a lot of people that are maybe a little younger than me and those that are older than me, the younger crowd, maybe not realize how big this song was. It was released in 1974 by Carl Douglas. And some of you just went, oh, I know what that song is. If you don't know, you're going to have to wait. Let me just tell you first, because I don't think people get how big this song was, even though everybody's heard it. And yes, it does relate to today's topic in a weird way. Well, not a weird way, a direct way, but uh, it's kind of the uh, the showy part of it, right? So anyway, this song was number one in the following countries. Uh, and I'll give a couple places. It was number two and number three at some point on the charts. Australia, number one. Austria, number one. Belgium, number one. Canada, number one. France, number one. Germany, number one. Ireland, number one. Italy, it only made it to number three. It is in English, by the way. The Netherlands, it went to number one. New Zealand, it went to number one. Norway, it went to number three. South Africa, it went to number one. Switzerland, number two. Uh, United Kingdom, it went to number one. United States, it went to number one. And every chart that we have, just about, it is uh, that big of a song back in 1974. And it is Kung Fu Fighting. Why would I play that song today? Well, we just talked about martial arts, and we were kind of hard on the whole theatrical side of things. But, you know, Richard actually 
is a choreographer and works in that industry too, as he called it, extreme martial arts. You know, but I'm just thinking, I remember when I was a kid, and I remember watching the old kung fu movies, right? The kung fu movies like the kung fu movies that, uh, that, that, that Peter Gibbons and his girlfriend, played by Jennifer Aniston, watched in Office Space, those kung fu movies. The ones that were badly dubbed over, like where the guy was still talking for two seconds or three seconds after the word stopped. And, you know, my master is better than your master, and I will show you with my... That stuff, right? That's what this makes me think of. And you know what? Damn it if the 70s and the 80s weren't really a pretty good time to be a kid in a lot of ways. You know, those of us in Gen X, we're known as the, the generation that raised ourselves. You know, our parents weren't that involved, and I think mine was even an extreme case of that. But on some levels, I'm grateful for it because... Maybe we're the last tough generation in some ways, and maybe this new generation is going to rise up and, and prove that they can be tough too. But, man, those days were pretty good days. They were the days before the Internet. There was no Internet. I don't care what anybody says. The, the type of Internet we're talking about, I know, yes, technically it was invented in the 70s, but not, not the Internet that we're talking about today. There were no podcasts. There were like, you know, unless you had cable, there were like seven channels and on the TV and and. Three of them, you had to use the UHF, the second dial. A lot of you don't even know what that means. TV used to have dials you turned, manually turned them, and there was a, a UHF dial, and you could turn the top one, and you could get different other off-band things, and it was those channels that the Kung Fu shows came on on, on like Saturday night. Yeah. Um, the 70s and 80s were a good time in some ways and a bad time in others, but uh, there was a certain optimism. And I, I think in today's world, we've kind of lost some of that optimism, even though we have more opportunity than ever. We also have more problems than ever. It's up to us to grab onto that optimism. And if this song just doesn't make you feel good, you're doing it wrong. So start doing it right and enjoy your life no matter what happens around you. Be smart. Stay alive. Have situational awareness, but also have some dadgone fun. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Thank you.